This is Corporate Cafecito, where we discuss career development and entrepreneurial growth strategies. I'm Mario Rodriguez. Y yo soy Nayeli Suarez-Guez. Go get your cafecito and let's talk about professional growth. Hola a todos. I am Nayeli Suarez-Guez, aquí de Corporate Cafecito. Y hoy me acompaña JC González Méndez. And he is... I found him through a friend of a friend, through networking, so make sure you listen to our networking podcast. Um, but he is the type of person that when you're like, you did what? And then you did what? And then you were where? Um, and the story just keeps evolving and snowballing. And I'm not going to do any spoilers because I'd like to welcome JC to Corporate Cafecito. Bienvenido. Muchas gracias, Nayeli. Es un placer. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Why don't we just start by talking a little bit about where you're from and how you got started? Certainly. Um, I was born and raised in Mexico City. I am the second of seven of a middle-class family in Mexico City that, uh, uh, that has two fathers because my dad died when I was two and a half. My mom remarried to the gentleman that I've always known as my dad. I have four. Uh, it's... Four sisters and, and two brothers, only in total. Um, is the oldest a sister or a brother? My sister. Oh, okay. My sister. <laughs> it, it is her, then me, then two sisters, then two brothers, and then our little sister, our 50-year-old sister. <laughs> um, when I was young, uh, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. And so I wanted to study something that had marine sciences into it. And... I tried to apply to the Ensenada School of Oceanography at the time, and my parents told me, it's a little too risky. It's the first time they're doing this. Why don't you look for something different? Mm -hmm. And in looking into other opportunities, I found that Tec de Monterrey offered uh, Ingeniería en Agronomía. And I said, well, this is not marine sciences, but it's food, maybe. And while I was going into uh, my first interviews and, and trying to find out a little more about the school, I saw that they had a career that said something, something in marine sciences. And I said, this is it. Yeah. You're like, uh, perfect. Uh, this is perfect. This is not only going to prepare me to be Jacques Cousteau, uh, but it's going to be the perfect fit. Little did I know that the little something, something was biochemical engineering. <laughs> By the time I noticed, it was too late. You're like, um, I'm in. So uh, I, I went to Tech de Monterrey and I graduated with a, degree in marine sciences and food tech. Why did I do both? Is because about halfway through my career, I found that I get deadly seasick. <laughs> That's not good for a marine biologist. Uh, it really isn't. <laughs> if you have to be out there in the middle of the ocean two, three times uh, a week, it was treacherous. And thank God for the school that had the opportunity to have dual minors, mm -hmm. and I did food tech. So marine sciences is my passion, and food tech was my ticket to the big leagues, so to speak. So why do you say that was your ticket to the big leagues? Because it's what opened the doors for me to work in an area that I spent over 30 years uh, in, in the food industry. My, my first job was with the Mexican uh, Departamento de Pesca, the fishing ministry, uh, making new products out of the ocean f uh, to make a meal for people with... Uh, Low income. That was, I guess, my compromise of being in the in the ocean, that sort both. of. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but working with food. 
And I did that for over three years. When McDonald's came to Mexico, and they had two requirements. They wanted to have somebody that had a food tech background from Tech de Monterrey, and which I did, mm-hmm. and knew a little bit of English, which I did not. But my boss was Cuban, so we faked it for the first few months. Um, <laughs> my my, my they say boss fake who, it till you make it. So, uh, oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, it was uh, I did not know what McDonald's was uh, at the time. My wife and I uh, wanted to move to the U.S. because the opportunities in Mexico were very, very few and very difficult. You couldn't get a mortgage. Uh, it, it was really difficult. So we always try to yeah. uh, find something in the U.S. And when McDonald's came to Mexico, we saw the opportunity. Well, this is in Mexico, but it's working for the corporation. So maybe it'll be an opportunity mm-hmm. for us to do something else. My job was to develop the sources of supply for the first restaurant that opened in 1985, probably a few years before you were even born. <laughs> no, I, w- I was born. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually getting ready to go to the Mundial in 86. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so uh, I was the very first employee of McDonald's Mexico, uh, and my job was to be the purchasing manager, develop the sources of supply. But since I was the only rep, I did engineering work, I did real estate work, I did construction work, Anything and everything that people needed, I was a provider. So it was a very good learning opportunity for me. I was very young, but exposed to a lot of things that uh, helped me see the business from a very broad side. Can you explain a little more? Because I think what you're saying is you became a jack of all trades. But sometimes like from where you were coming from, which is, you know, the the food tech and Tec de Monterrey, like... How did you how did you feel comfortable? I know we said fake it till you make it for the language, but how did you feel comfortable doing like the engineering or doing some of the procurement and the sourcing? Like that would have been something foreign to you. It's interesting you ask that question. Because I didn't realize the things that I did at McDonald's until I left McDonald's and from the distance I saw it. And then I was in this is gonna sound terrible almost pretentious, but I was in awe of the things that I was able to accomplish. How did I do that? So uh, I did it because I, I, I don't think I understood what it was. But at the same time, my mom always had a, a, a lot of great uh, uh, motives and a lot of great sayings. But um, one that I stuck with me for a long time was, if it has a solution, why do you worry? Mm. And if it doesn't, why do you worry? <laughs> right? Yeah, because it doesn't no, that's matter. True. It yeah. doesn't matter. It's easier said now than then, but I think that allowed me to. I never said no to an opportunity. I took any any move that they asked me to. Some of them took a little longer to make a decision, mm-hmm. but I was not afraid of doing anything different. I worked in operations, in supply chain, in quality assurance, and management, and. Corporate social responsibility and sustainability and philanthropy and diversity and inclusion. So I did a lot. I did very little of a lot of things. There was a there was this uh, Israeli uh, psychologist, and he talked. He's the one that designed the survey for the military to find out which branch is the best branch for you to go in. What's the best fit? And they still use his today, and it he made it over fifty years ago. 
And one of the things they asked them is, how did you know how to do something so difficult? And he said, I didn't know it was difficult, so it wasn't. And I think that like you're telling me this and I'm thinking about that, like you just did it. You don't, and it's good that you're able to stand back and be like, wow, because I think a lot of times we don't take that moment to like pause and say like, wow, like, whoa, I did that. Yeah, but I I also had a lot of, I mean, the gentleman that hired me became my mentor, padrino de mi primera hija, and then almost our, our adoptive father in, in Chicago. He was an incredibly witty and very smart, street smart individual. Mm-hmm. He had been a, he emigrated from Cuba, so he came to New York at the age of 15. Uh, he was on the streets. He became a policeman uh, in narcotics, so he saw everything. Yeah, I bet. And eventually yeah. had a career in supply chain in Sears and then McDonald's. And But he was truly an individual that he loved a challenge. He never shied away. And I learned from him. It, it, it was, don't tell me it can't be done. I'll show you. That it yeah. can be done. Or just tell me what yeah. you need to yeah. get it done. Yeah. So I, I, I think a lot of it was, I didn't know better that it was difficult to do. And then the other one is I never shy away from trying something new. So when you started and you built the Mexican uh, McDonald's, what brought you over here? Like, was it a project? Was it a position? So it interesting because after we opened the fifth restaurant in Mexico and things were really going very well. Uh, McDonald's decided that they will no longer have McDonald's Corporation employees. Mm-hmm. And they would have a an entity in Mexico that would give support to the franchises, uh, at the time, joint venture partnerships in Mexico. Uh, and I resigned. I said, I did not join McDonald's to be a part of a small company. I joined McDonald's to have the opportunity to go to the U.S. Uh, my boss's boss flew to Mexico to hear my reasoning why I was mm-hmm. leaving. Uh, we had breakfast at the Camino Real, and I remember I still have the three yellow page, uh, yellow pad pages of things that I wanted to say. He let me go through my entire litany. <laughs> and at the end of the day, he told me, well, we would like you to come to the U.S. to be the quality assurance manager for Latin America. Like, Rip up the pages, let's go. So, But... <laughs> Taught me a great lesson. Mm-hmm. He wanted to hear my thinking. Yeah. Because he could have very easily said, hey, don't worry about it. We got it covered. We're coming. You're coming with us. He wanted to hear what my thinking was, why I was quitting, why did I feel disenchanted with the brand, why did I feel that I was cheated because of what I had said. I, I, I never said, you said this or you said this. My expectations were these. Your expectations were that, and I did come through. How come you don't? So they moved us to uh, Chicago. Uh, I was 20, oh, my God, 25, 26. Uh, Deborah, my wife, was 25, and we had one Cocker Spaniel. That's it. (laughs) And I believe we had $2,000 in our bank account, and we moved. I know. I have the... The pleasure of having already spoken to you and and spend time together. Tell us the story about Deborah. I love what you shared. Sure, um, Deborah is the first and only love I've ever had. But I remember my mom driving around the neighborhood when I saw this beautiful 
young blonde with skinny, bony legs <laughs> at the corner. I says, Mom, stop, stop. You see that girl over there? Yeah. I'm going to marry her. <laughs> I was 13. She was 12. We started going steady in 1973 at 12 and 13. And we went steady for 10 years, 11 months, one day. <laughs> until we got married on April 28th of 84. And we've been married for almost 40 years now. That's amazing. I, um, I love that when you were telling me. So I love, you know, I think that in order to be able to take risks or to be able to kind of even fulfill our professional dreams, it, it helps to have a good cheerleader, to have a good supporter at home too. You can't do it without it. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, make, make no mistake. I did not say yes to any of the opportunities we had until I talked to her. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's a, a family decision, right? And there's a lot that she had to give up for me to do the crazy things that I wanted to do. So my husband and I, we met in Texas. And when we had started dating, we had been dating like three months. And I, I felt like, oh, this guy might be the one. Like, <laughs> And I told him, I said, you know, my dream is to move to Chicago. I want to move back home. And he was like, yeah, I'm okay with that. And we moved here. And several years later, um, I had the opportunity to join a company to move back to Texas. And I remember he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was right before I was going to go meet with the CEO. He said, I don't want to do it. I want to stay here. And I was like, okay, we'll stay here. Cause he's never been, you know, it's never been so decisive where he's like, I don't want to leave. Oh, like, Deborah has been my biggest cheerleader, my biggest supporter. Mm -hmm. uh, she knows my good, my bad and my ugly. <laughs> because after being together for so long, during those very crucial years when you're growing yes. up, uh, you mold yourselves, right? right? You know what you're thinking uh, without even looking at each other, which is scary, but it's <laughs> pretty cool, actually. I love that. So you move here with $2,000 in the bank account. And the very first week I was here, I flew on a Sunday morning, mm -hmm. no, Sunday evening, and I was gone for two weeks. And she just was here alone. And Deborah was here by herself <laughs> with Mazapan, our Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> and unfortunately, that was the story for over 20 years. And at the time, cell phones didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Phone calls were extremely expensive. Believe it or not, Nayeli, the internet was not created until 1987, 88. So there was no way that we could communicate. Uh, touchstones didn't exist. <laughs> You know, I was just talking with my dad. I'm like, remember when we all had the Nextels? It was like, and that's how Correct. we communicated to Mexico. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So that 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 was it. And unfortunately, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be for Deborah because she always managed. She always did everything that needed to be done. I mean, she's a physical therapist by trade, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, she was very frustrated because she could never work in the U.S. because she was licensed in Mexico, but not in the U.S. But it didn't transfer. She's an American citizen. But because it was not done in the U.S., it couldn't be done. She tried to get validated in, in Chicago when we were here. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to California. <laughs> we tried to do it there. Then we moved to Mexico. So it, it came to a point that she said, I can't do that. But she was a, ki a kindergarten teacher. She, she started a new program uh, with uh, young kids to learn Spanish so that she could have her children there. Smart. And, I mean, she did it all. But you can't do it without that. So 
you get here and you start. How was your experience coming from Mexico to work here at like a headquarters? It's interesting because when I first came for my interview, mm-hmm. uh, I was c- contacted through a headhunter. And when I had my interviews that evening, uh, Deborah, I, I called Deborah and she asked me, so what do you think? I said, I think they made a mistake. <laughs> it's what it means. These guys are looking for somebody at a much higher caliber than they're talking to. I said, well, how do you end up the meeting? I said, well, I just, when they asked me if I had any questions, I just pulled out my pen. And I said, where do I sign? <laughs> and they asked me, well, we haven't even discussed salary. I said, I, I know you're going to take care of me. Yeah. I just want to work with you. We were elated to be able to get out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, we try to do that. That's why we got married in Texas, so that she could get, uh, that we could get more papers in the U.S. that would make it easier. While she was an American citizen, I was not. So it, it was important for us to try to establish a way for us to get those papers eventually. Yes. Um, I did not experience the, maybe the bigotry or the difference on, on, on race that you would see in the U.S. because I was traveling throughout international. That makes sense. I traveled through Latin America for a few years. Then I was in charge of qualifications for Europe then Asia Pacific. It was not until I moved to California, when we moved to California, uh, because once again, uh, I almost quit. Because <laughs> my boss, my mentor, uh, retired. Mm-hmm. And he was a director of purchasing and quality assurance for Latin America. And I thought, well, who can replace him better than me? The only one of the people that are purchasing managers in Latin America that has a footage background is me. Mm-hmm. The only one that has been the the Latin America quality assurance manager is me. Uh, I speak Spanish, I speak English, and by then I had learned to speak Portuguese. So I said, "I, I am, I am it." Yeah, I'm. That's me. That's my and role. And unfortunately, I was told no. Oh. And the reasons uh, could get them in trouble now because they told me that I couldn't get that promotion because I did not have any white hairs. <laughs> I was 27, 28. Um, so, so I was disenchanted once again. They brought somebody else. Two years later, they, they fired this individual because he was not what they thought he would be. They brought somebody else that uh, it was different. Uh, he had a lot of white hairs, had a lot of respect for him. He was a great teacher. But once again, I knew I needed to move. That's why we went to California. Our move so- was lateral. How did that sit? Because I know a lot of us get passed up for promotions. It's really hard, especially when you get passed up for a promotion of a job that you're already doing. And now you have to like manage your manager, like teach your manager a job that you felt would have been yours. So that that's when you need your, your cheerleader to pull you aside and says, chill. Yeah. You're not quitting because you have a lot of future here. Uh, yes, it is sad that you're being passed on, but this is temporary. Uh, and I'm glad I paid attention to her because if not, I would have thrown away an incredible opportunity. Has your cafecito run out? Go grab another cup. We'll wait for you right here. Please check us out at corkcafecito.com and drop us a message.
then you took a job in California? Now we were in California. Okay. I was a purchasing manager for LA, San Diego, and Hawaii, managing about a million dollars worth of purchases a day. Wow. And I thought I was a big cheese. Yeah. <laughs> uh, little did I know that it was just the beginning. When I was there, uh, that's when I started to understand the differences of race. That's where I, uh, meeting with the African-American owner-operator, so the Latino owner-operators or the women operators or the Asian, and, and I saw how they were pulling and, uh, and pushing, and I really didn't understand the struggle of the African-American male until a good friend of mine, an African-American, gave me a book. And says, hey, this is something that I think it can help you. I believe it was called The, the Rage of a Privileged Class. It talks about uh, the rage of... Uh, of of the African American male, and that taught me a lot. So in learning mm-hmm. of the story of, of the African American, I think I better understood than what happened to them. Yes, had more empathy. Uh, I didn't have to learn about the struggle of the uh, Hispanics in the U.S. Uh, in Mexico, when you go to school, you do study historia universal, and you know that Texas. Yeah. And you know that Florida, and you know that New Mexico, you know that the very first settlement in the U.S. is San Agustin in Florida in 1557, not 1776. Yep. So don't get me going. That's for another <laughs> podcast. Um, so I, I, I learned that that was more difficult. But going back to California, uh, we went there because uh, Deborah's mom and two sisters live in California. And we thought that it was important for, now we had two children, I know we had one child, uh, for them to, for her to have Family access support. to grandma and yep. the two sisters. We thought it, we were going to be there for three years, we were there for over seven years. Oh, wow. While I was doing the, uh, the purchasing site, I noticed that people that were getting the big promotions had the stars and stripes that come from working on the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time... I wanted to be an officer. I didn't know what that meant. But I loved the cars they drove. <laughs> I liked the clothes they were wearing. And I started doing some digging. And I called my mentor. And my mentor, who had already retired, put me in touch with another one of my mentors, uh, Pat Flynn, who, who told me, uh, if you want to really succeed uh, in, at McDonald's, you need to have that experience in, in operations. But I also was smart enough to wait to be asked rather than me asking to get in. Yes. At the time, McDonald's was looking for Latino talent uh, to be developed because they were short on, on high-ranking Latinos. And so I joined. I left the, the tie and the jacket and put the short sleeve and, and went into the restaurants to work as a manager, trainee, second assistant, first assistant manager, eventually a restaurant manager. Uh, eventually was a trainer, then a supervisor, and three years later, I went back to the position that I had left. We talk about, you know, lateral moves, but did you feel this was a step backwards to get the operations Well, I went down nine positions, you tell me if it's (laughs) But in your head, you knew that you were doing it because it would help you later. Yes and no. Okay. I knew that embedded in that training was the potential for a better career opportunity. Mm-hmm. But nothing is promised. Uh, and then I say no because I remember one Saturday about 2 o'clock in the morning 
when I was cleaning the toilets of the men's restroom, calling Deborah, crying. Mm. I said, honey, can you remind me why I'm doing this? Because this doesn't feel like yeah, this doesn't I should feel be like, doing this. Yeah. And once again, she's the one that said, this is just temporary. Don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. They want you to do this. There's a reason why they want you to do this. Uh, to make a long story short, three years later, I came back and I was now managing the company-owned restaurants in L.A., about 100 restaurants, about $200 million worth of business. But now having a much greater impact because I had, I don't know, 350 uh, managers and about four operations managers and supervisors and thousands of employees. But having been exposed to the restaurants so recently, much more than the other individuals that were there with we the were same to it. Uh, with the yeah. same uh, level of experience that I did that, that I had at the time were so far removed because I just had it recently. I knew of people that could be promoted that could be developed because I had the language proficiency. Yes. Remember this is LA. About forty or fifty percent of our employees were Spanish speakers only. Yeah. So the people couldn't understand or see the potential in them, right? Um, so that that's what we did. Uh, I once I was managing those McDonald's company on restaurants, I know I developed a an internship program to attract Latinas. Extremely successful. Um, when I ended my tour on as a director of operations on those restaurants, uh, I think 72% of my managers were Latinos. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, correct. Uh, but it was by design. Mm -hmm. Because then I had learned that we needed to give opportunities. And if the opportunities were not given to us, somebody had to create them. And we did. Right. Now, we were not making moves. Uh, just for the sake of making moves. We were sure that they produced. That they were qualified. That when they we were, had those yeah. 100 restaurants, uh, we had five what they call profit centers, a group of 20 or 30 restaurants out of 116 in the country. That year, 1995, we ranked on the top 16 in sales. Wow. But we were number one, two, three, four, five in profits. That's amazing. It, it was. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but we were able to put together an incredible team of very talented individuals I by think, bringing people that had the education of college, yes. that had more opportunities for growth because they had that to grow beyond the restaurant. I think there's a lot to be said about understanding the fundamentals of a business, though. Absolutely. Um, you know, with when I was with Frito Lay, they always put us on routes. We always had to run a route. And when you went out to run a route, they gave you like the worst route. It was like the dollar store one where everything was little and tiny and you had to get it on the shelf. And it's uh, like I have a, a delivery company. And one of the things we do is like we always take out a route if we get a new geography because we want to make sure we understand the nuances, the streets, sure. how they're laid out. I had someone with logistics background who said, hey, I, I want to join your team. And, and I said, great. And I said, you know, we'll get you set up as a driver. And he said, oh, no, I'm a manager and I'd like to come in as a manager. And I said, no one starts as a manager. We all start the same way. We all start right. as drivers because you need to know how to do the job. You need to understand when your phone dies, when Absolutely. when you get a flat tire, when like what to do because a lot of that, unless you experience it firsthand, it's very hard to have Absolutely. an empathy for that position. One of my 
greatest tools when I became an officer was a diary that I kept during my days in the operations side. Because anything and everything that was frustrating me, I knew it was frustrating others. And you're like, estoy and lavando I knew, los baños. <laughs> I knew that I needed to fix some of those things. Yeah. The equipment that was not very reliable or the, the delivery time that was coming in that, that it shouldn't be or the temperature controls, anything I was just writing down. Because once I was able to make decisions, once I was able to make a difference, the little things, the long-hanging fruit made a huge difference Absolutely. for my managers because yeah. they knew that I knew right. what was afflicting them, right? So when you built this team and you had the success, I know when you do good work, the reward is more work. So then what happened? So it, it's interesting you say that. Uh, we, we had a, a new, uh, well, when I was managing these restaurants in, in L.A., business of over $200 million, I found myself making financial decisions without a real training. About $20 million were reinvested a year. And I, while well, I knew how to read a financial statement, I really didn't know. <laughs> so I, I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to uh, do an MBA at USC. But USC was about $60,000 a year at the time. Couldn't afford it. Probably so I looked more into, now. Oh, it's 90. <laughs> I, I was looking at UCLA reluctantly. It was about as expensive. I went to UCAL, UC Northridge, UCSE. By the time I got to a place that I could afford, it was not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a senior executive that had recently been moved back from Europe was brought into the U.S. to make changes because the company was not doing well in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And when he was flying into the, uh, L.A., my boss did not want to meet with him. <laughs> and I raised my hand, I'll, I'll meet with him. Yeah, I'll go get Are him. Are you crazy? Yeah. I'll, I'll go with him. Make a long story short, he tells me, you need to find me two Latinos that are MBAs that you can get through the training program that you have been over the last few years and make them directors of operations within three to five years. And I remember asking Tom, I said, Tom, what do an MBA bring that we don't have? Well, the financial acumen, the strategic thinking. And I said, well, wouldn't it be easier to find somebody that has ketchup in their veins and give them that that. training (laughs) rather than grab somebody that has the MBA and try to McDonaldize them? Well, do you know of anybody? I raised my hand. <laughs> like, uh, you're looking I said, well, at what them. do you know about MBAs? I said, well, funny you ask. <laughs> I know at the time, lot. I was carrying a briefcase, and I had everything in there. And he says, which is the best one? I said, USC. So what's keeping you? You're like money. 60000 Yeah. He says, I'll tell you what. If you get into USC, I'll sponsor you. Wow. My wife, Deborah, was having our third child. Mm-hmm. We were at the hospital. And while she was pushing, I was filling out the applications for <laughs> USC. It's terrible, but it's the truth. So I did do my MBA while I was a director of operations in LA. So I was working 40 hours and then, or 60, uh, and putting another 20 to 30 on school. So it was very taxing for a couple of years. But as soon as I graduated, they asked me to go back to Mexico. Like, wait a second. I said, let me finish. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, they had promoted a Canadian that didn't speak a word of Spanish as president of Mexico. And I said, I don't want to be 
a translator of anybody. Yeah. Why don't you wait for me to finish here and then we'll talk? Well, as soon as I finished, they called me again and said, we want you to go down there and we want you to be the second in command. And eventually in 18 months, we want you to take over. Going back to Mexico was important for Deborah and I to bring our children born in the U.S. but being Mm Mexican-American. It was important for us to give them the exposure of living, to the culture. Yeah. Well, well, they were already cheering for the uh, La Verde, se ponían La Verde en el juego de soccer, o, o comían tacos en lugar de hamburguesas. It was important for them to be close to family. Yeah. So we, we took the job in February of 98, and in May of 98, I became president of McDonald's. Mexico. Oh, wow. That was in 18 months. No, the last time I checked is not. <laughs> You know what, JC? I want to make sure that we capture your experience moving from Mexico on to now your retirement from there. But I want to thank you for being on this show, for sharing what you share, and for being an inspiration and a role model. So I'm excited to keep bringing you back so we could keep hearing more. So thank you. I'll be more than happy to do that. Yeah. I think it's important to show our people that si se puede. Yeah, si se puede porque si se pudo. Just remember that the road to success is a toll road. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that may be a very Mexican mordida thing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us today for Corporate Cafecito y nos vemos la próxima. Hasta luego. Corporate Cafecito was produced in beautiful downtown Oak Park at Boulevard Studio. Audio engineer and editor is Mike Mitchell. We're available on every podcast platform. 